Welcome to Percussion Perspectives, a podcast by Henrik Knabor Larsen and Håkon Steinen. Each episode of Percussion Perspectives features one or more musical artists in conversation about musical education, practice and aesthetic and sociological perspectives. Ross Carr is an American percussionist, filmmaker and producer based in New York City, who is now artistic director of the International Contemporary Ensemble, or the ICE Ensemble, a leading new music group that performs all over the world. His projection design work has been presented all over the world in prestigious venues. His most recent release, 10.67 Cycles, from which you will hear excerpts in this episode, features the music of composers Ashley Fuhr and Pauline Oliveros. In our talk, Ross talks about his background as a marching band player growing up in Michigan, his education from the Oberlin Conservatory of Music, and both the music department and the visual art department at the University of California, San Diego, with teachers such as Michael Rosen and Stephen Schick. He talks about his work with the International Contemporary Ensemble, which includes artistic direction and curation, video documentation, as well as performing. He talks about listening as a way of professional research, about the politics of artistic programming, about how the idea of musical taste is a social construct, about the lack of social awareness in his own education, and about issues he finds significant and urgent to the entire music scene today. My name is Ross Carr. I'm a percussionist based in Brooklyn, New York, and I grew up in southwest Michigan, which is uh, sort of in the middle of the northern middle part of the United States. And I grew up in a town with um, a really prominent band program, marching band mostly, as a lot of uh, students in the United States, especially wind players, brass players, percussionists, um, grow up through a system of marching bands. Um, And uh, my neighbor, coincidentally, is a drum set player. His name is Larry Ochiltree. Um, and I, as, as a kid, was heard him playing through the windows, you know, of our different houses. And um, went over one day to, you know, ask if I could 
know more about that as a young as a child. And then we took I took lessons from him for many years, and he's super influential. Um, but mostly, it's the band programs that got me interested in uh, in I don't know the entire ecosystem of of making music. So composing and arranging and notation and multiple instrument setups. Uh, the marching band program in the U.S. is actually it's um it has a bunch of problems but it's very influential on so many musicians um and was for me as well and then there's a, a summer camp called interlochen which is in northern michigan um and i went there for a few summers and then ended up finishing my high school there at a, uh, a boarding school um so i went there for a year and during this whole time is basically going from a drum set player to a really diehard kind of classical percussionist and a lot of investment in keyboard percussion, especially in marimba at the time. Um, and then I went to uh, Oberlin Conservatory. And at Oberlin Conservatory, I became extremely invested and interested in living composers and contemporary music, especially in an ensemble context and percussion ensemble, contemporary music ensemble, mostly through um, Michael Rosen, the percussion teacher, and also uh, Tim Weiss, the conductor of the Contemporary Music Ensemble, as well as a lot of the composers who came through um, Oberlin. That's also where I met Steve Schick. He was a guest and uh, gave me a lesson, and we immediately had a, a good good connection. So then I um, went to University of California in San Diego. In and among all of this, uh, trips to Lucerne Festival Academy, which was hugely influential on me. I met so many colleagues through that, um, especially people like Johannes Fischer in the first year there and and uh, lots of friends from that that point. Um, and the Aspen Music Festival, I was a, a laborer there, a percussion mover person. Um, so that was hugely influential. And then at UCSD is really a, like a kind of, I don't know, perhaps a utopia for making work of living composers and making collaborations um, and also liberating a new ideology of a percussion practice that certainly doesn't come from or isn't adherent to keyboard percussion playing uh, or orchestral percussion playing. So I really found a lot of new interest there. And then toward the end of that became really interested in codifying the visual art practice of moving images and video and film. So I stayed and, and completed another degree there in film. And uh, yeah, that's the that's the shortest story, I think. Um, there's a lot along the way I can talk yeah, about. Let, let's elaborate a little bit, because uh, pretty much every American musician or composer or percussionist I talk to have has been to Oberlin at some point in <laughs> in their lives. So maybe tell a little bit more about uh, that um university that academy and maybe about the department such and about um michael rosen this mm -hmm. seems to be this pedagogical legend that has produced so many <laughs> amazing players yeah yeah and and um yeah michael rosen is a huge influence on on percussion but also on contemporary music in the united states because not coincidentally Uh, his students have um, taken responsibility for organizing contemporary music. And most, a lot of his percussion students are. So for example, the, the artistic director of eighth Blackbird, a member of so percussion, Adam Slowinski, um, myself and John Hepfer. And, you know, many of the people you've spoken with already, Jen Torrance, not only play percussion, but organize projects um, and maybe even organize entire ensembles or, or academic programs. So, 
his influence is, is large and the, the connection between Oberlin Conservatory, which is very invested in contemporary music and the music of living composers, and the University of California in San Diego, where Steve Schick is teaching, is really strong. There's a lot of um, students that go to both. And it's primarily, I think, um, a stated, let's say, commitment to contemporary music um, and a little bit the contemporary music that's outside of the Percussive Arts Society International Convention, which is a kind of university-based contemporary music. It has has had a lot more radical influence recently, but um, yeah, thinking about music that comes from the lineage of the percussion group of Cincinnati, Black Earth Percussion Group, uh, is very influential on the Oberlin scene um, and the, all the student groups that come through there. And then recently, all of the groups, contemporary music ensembles, Eighth Blackbird, So Percussion, International Contemporary Ensemble, and Talia have had leadership from Oberlin's uh, conservatory. And so that's that's like the connection between that. But Eastman Eastman is is undeniably important in this too. It's to the Jack String Quartet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, other than their um, enthusiasm, which is of course very influential, um, is there a thing to the teaching philosophy that that you kind of still uh, draw on or that you carry with you? I, yeah, I, I would credit most of the teaching philosophy to Tim Weiss, the conductor of the Contemporary Music Ensemble. Tim has been um, primarily teaching by way of creating lots of programming opportunities. Um, so there's many, many concerts each year. So there's a saturation of experiences. And so by the end of an undergraduate to have played, you know, 20 world premieres and, <laughs> you know, residencies from people like Lachenmann and, and Bert Whistle and Oliveros and um, Meredith Monk, so there's also the bringing in guests because Oberlin is in a very, very small town in Northern Ohio. There's no automatic proximity to places where people like um, Meredith Monk live, like New York City or, or Chicago. So Oberlin does a, a fantastic job of bringing in those artists for short residencies, which means that that access is um, kind of unprecedented. There's a very small student body. So you... I. Just had lots of conversations with Harrison Burtwistle while he was there, and that was big a big influence. And um, yeah, there's that, and then there's also just the the inspiration to self organize to to really create your own projects that uh, that have legs after the after the schooling is done. It's a pretty good mix of. There's a lot of agency. The students have their own agency in programming for sure, um, especially in the recital projects and chamber music projects. Those were the highlights of my experiences there. But uh, Tim Weiss is, is constantly bringing new repertoire and new composers to the, to the conservatory. And also the applied faculty, all of the private, private faculty teaching lessons are bringing in colleagues. And um, so that, that steers a lot of the exposure to repertoire. In terms of a, a kind of sequence of pedagogical philosophy of when should a young student be, gain access to contemporary music for maybe for all percussion studios that's right away right all of our music is new but to be um, attentive to western european contemporary music in a much more um, uh, holistic way and also a, a, a much larger um, worldview of contemporary music right away as a 19 year old is um perhaps distinct for Oberlin. Yeah. Mm. 
And then you move to US, UCSD, US of A. I'll probably retake this at some point, but not now. <laughs> and then I think we met in 2008 where you were just kind of, you were finishing your DMA, your doctorate. That's right, yeah. And you um, gained interest in um, in the arts department and you mm -hmm. got interested in, in video art and you also studied there for a couple of years, right? As an expansion yep. of your percussion practice or did you think about leaving the percussion practice? What was that story? Yeah, um, so it all happened in sequence, There, and I, I didn't have any overlap, uh, and there wasn't any um, abandonment. So I, I, at 2008 and 2009 is when I finished the doctorate, which the DMA just stands for Doctor of Musical Arts, and that's the final degree you can get as a performer in the U.S. currently. Um, and then at that moment, there was a, a, you know, the recession, the 2008 economic recession which which took away or froze paused a lot of the university job searching that was happening um so it it basically put me in a situation where i was where i could move to a city and be a freelancer which was exciting uh or i could um pursue this other interest that has always been a part of my work but was never i didn't have much um formal education in it outside of um, a minor i have a minor in cinema studies from oberlin which is like a second, a smaller degree. It's not a, it's not your major degree, which was music. Um, but then, once, once at uh, UCSD and collaborating with a few of the visual arts uh, colleagues and faculty, I realized that their, the spirit of their program and the visual arts facility is very similar to UCSD's music department. It's a, a very uh, st a strong commitment to contemporary, contemporary art. Well, it's mostly like experimental art um, and performance art. But the visual art program for moving image for film practice was really strong. And I was lucky enough to, to be able to stay and just do that degree. So that's, the, that's an MFA in visual art. Right. And, and today you run a business documenting art events. But do you also have a creative practice uh, based on visual, visual media? Yeah, they, they kind of blur with each other sometimes, but... So what in, in New, I moved to New York in 2011 with the idea and the invitation of Claire Chase to play with International Contemporary Ensemble alongside my colleague Nathan Davis. Um, and so we would be two percussionists in this group. Um, before that, David Schatzko, also an incredible percussionist who's based in Toronto, was, was in the um, International Contemporary Ensemble as a percussionist and organizer. So I, in a way, was taking over for him. Um, and... Uh, immediately started playing concerts, but also filming those concerts and creating a kind of documentation practice, which is just event or concert documentation. And a lot of people saw me doing that in the context of the ensemble and asked me to start doing it for their ensembles. And it sort of just grew organically. And I formalized it a little bit under a heading called ARCAD, which is Ross Carr Arts Documentation. And that was half of my livelihood for five years or so. Um, just filming concerts and um, also really built my community, my uh, friends and my um, network of uh, experimental musicians that um, I feel really grateful for that. And I still, I still do that, especially for the International Contemporary Ensemble. And during the pandemic, it's picked up a little bit because of the need for video distribution of people's artistic practices. But um, ultimately, it's it, it, the collective that's, that is... Uh, my my favorite group of people that I work with all the time in film and video stuff um, has their own 
entity, as it were, or it's kind of a collective that can just respond to inquiries of people who need event documentation, and and then a team can could go manage it. Um, but my the artistic side of that for me usually takes the form of projection design and projection mapping, which is more of purely visual aestheticized practice. It's not documentary, although as things start to refine and you know, if I had to choose one one thing to do forever, it would be documentaries. Okay, yeah, so that's my passion is about yeah, like document documentation, documentary, and and the potential artistic expressive side of that, as opposed to you know the factual nonfiction storytelling aspects of it. Uh, the International Contemporary Ensemble it was formed in the late 90s and early 2000s, also by a lot of Oberlin graduates, um, Oberlin students at the time who were looking for ways to collaborate. And I don't think the name International Contemporary Ensemble was in their minds at the moment, but the spirit of creating works and commissioning works by living composers was seems to have been the start. I wasn't there. Um, I was uh, at, at the, in the early 2000s, the main... Um, organizers were people like Claire Chase, of course, who then went on to be the CEO of the group um, and really founded the the structure of the group, um, but also uh, original members like Kivi Khan Lippman, Phyllis Chen, um, Josh Rubin, Jacob Greenberg, all t- classmates at Oberlin. And as they uh, formalized the ensemble and we zoom forward 20 years to now, uh, 2021, um, the ensemble is a collective of about 35 musicians and uh, also a lighting designer, electronic musician. So it's a collective of um, artists who work in concert production. Um, and it's a collective that's committed to commissioning new work. First of all, f- uh, finding new composers, not new to the world, but new to them and creating meaningful relationships with new, with composers, creating new works by those composers um, working a lot with improvisers and uh, generative music makers who don't fall into the composer's um, title, and then producing this work for the stage or for the recording studio at a pretty high pace. Like it's a very it's a very dense calendar, and there's a lot of activity, um, and it's structured in a very I don't know common model for the United States, where there's a board of directors, a staff of seven. Um, artists administrators and then the 36 members of the group and perhaps not unique to the United States but unique maybe around the world or from what I've seen members of the ensemble also serve administrative staff roles Um, it used to be that all the staff were performers in the group in the kind of earlier days of the of the structure and now that's uh, about two people on the staff are performers and the other five are um, administrators who are their own artists, but uh, not in the ensemble. I remember you saying to me at one uh, at one point, I think we met in Iceland some years ago, and you said that your your day, um, and this is maybe interesting for 
you know, students and young pros to, to mm -hmm. hear that you, you practiced from eight to nine in the morning and then pretty <laughs> much went emailing from nine to 10 in the evening. Then in the morning it hasn't changed. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's not true. It's not true. There have been some, there have yeah. been some changes and improvements. And, and can you tell me, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, was that a life you imagined as a, as a drummer, as a young professional? Um, what has that done to your practice? Um, what has it taught you about efficiency? And there's probably a lot to say about that. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I don't think I need to be too sentimental about it. I, I, I think like if I ask, if I told my 21 year old self, um, eventually you'll organize more music than you'll play, that I, that 21 year old Ross would be disappointed. But it's not disappointing to me now. It doesn't disappoint me in the slightest. So um, I don't. Uh, yeah, not to be sentimental, but I don't feel that my percussion practice is my, the most important thing that I do. And it's no longer the thing that is my highest artistic priority. I really love it. I mean, I like playing percussion. Um, most of what I like about percussion can be encapsulated in a very, very small sound phenomena kind of world. And when it comes to playing firstly of course a drum set part or a timpani part or something that comes into this other percussion practice i just don't engage with that that's that's like other people and they're also they're they're very good at it so yeah yeah i would say like i definitely did not uh aspire to have a, a drum set craft after i was 19 years old you know and i definitely didn't aspire to be a capital t timpanist um, after, after I was 20. Uh, so those, I already was committed to the focus and I don't think anyone, have, I don't think I understood the consequences of focusing like that or the opportunities, but that's just the career side of it. In terms of the artistic aspects of that, I, I am so glad that I made those decisions. I don't have a passion for old music. I don't have a passion for music that's not recently written full stop. Right. Also not privately. Nope. 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 It's not that I don't have respect for it. And those who I especially respect historical performance practitioners and their, their passion for, for, for that. But I don't, I don't have want or need um, Mozart, Beethoven and Bach in my life. Right. So I didn't mean only uh, classical music, but also pop music or whatever world music. But am I right in assuming that a lot of your listening time then is kind of a research thing? Like you're mm -hmm. looking for new new work, new composers? I'm listening all the time and I actually love the process of, um, you know, kind of uh, submissions that we get uh, and listening to scores and, and, and mm. recordings that come our way through that. So I do a lot of listening in that way and it is research-based Um if I'm listening to music in the car, it's it's usually like, you know, uh, jazz music or, um, you know, I don't know, genre-wise, it's kind of weird, but yeah. Can you say something about the uh, the research component of the listening, though? What, what what are you listening for or how have you learned to kind of liberate yourself from maybe your own likes and, di uh, and dislikes when looking for something that's on behalf of an, of an ensemble and a whole entity? Yeah, I, I, that that's a awesome question. I think the ensemble is definitely not a, a, um, a medium through which my aesthetic preferences are realized. That's not the mission of the ensemble. So right. it's actually really critical that the, um, uh, that, that, that separation is created. And so we build lots of mechanisms for that. It's mostly through independent panels 
but in the by by uh, just organically, even in organizing the panels, setting up the work samples in a list. I've just recently been doing that, for example, for a project, and right. I get to hear a lot of music. And in that listening, I can say I can use an instinct, which I think is developed just through my uh, practice and my experiences that says uh, there's there's something interesting happening here. I wonder if you also think that's interesting, colleague or performer, uh, collaborator. And so there's a lot of those kinds of conversations that come mm-hmm. out of this research. And there's also um, a lot of uh, trying to find ways that the systems that we've built that prioritize things like education pedigree and, of course, white supremacist systems and um, um, misogynistic systems are are excluding artists and trying to intentionally find ways to dismantle that exclusion or push against that exclusion or um, bypass it. So right. that's, a, that's the biggest part of the, of the effort of the ensemble now, and I've learned a lot in the last few years about good, good and bad ways to, to approach that. Right, this has been a major change maybe in the entire scene for the past five to ten years, right? So when, when we started, it was all about Absolutely. Um, the kind of canonical works, um, which happened to be male modernists. And um, yep. that was the, like the end of the discussion. Nobody even mentioned anything else. And then all of a sudden, this became very politicized. And can you tell us something about that from your perspective, how that changed your curation, how did it change your influence, your thinking? Uh, are there any problems connected to that, or is it all for the better? Yeah, um, I think that there has been a kind of um, uh, misstep from, let's say, 1940s and 50s that, that, the, um, that someone's personal taste mattered. It really doesn't. Um, and, and so what does matter is the uh, creation of maximal, uh, maximal agency of, of humanity and subjectivity by way of expressive um, practices. And so before we talk about, oh, it's you know, this aesthetic, or Talia does this, or Klang Forum Wien does that, and Music Fabrik does this aesthetically, before we talk about that, I think it's important to say that these groups, whether they want to or not, are the means by which artists have their work realized. And so they have... A, mm. Can you explain the historical origin in the 1940s? What do you mean by I that? I just think that there was a kind of like art for art's sake tendency um, that prioritized a taste but didn't interrogate where that taste comes from. Mm. Or like what, pri- what privileges allow you to have... In a critical research kind of way, you mean? Yeah, and it's just, yeah, and a socially critical way. What what get what makes taste, and then what makes the taste makers, the gatekeepers of of mm. of, a, of a taste aesthetic? And so now I think we're absolutely fully interrogating the curatorial process. It's the theme of nearly every <laughs> uh, conference and festival. Is like you know decolonizing curation or um, examining curation uh, f- from a perspective of dismantling. Um, existing systems of bias and systems of oppression. So I'm not a social practitioner, but that's the mistake of my education is that mm. it didn't create social practitioners while creating percussionists. That's, that's the point. thing we're correcting for now. Yeah. And, and to correct someone who's almost 40 years old is, is a harder, harder thing to do than someone who's in their undergraduate. So I'm delighted to right. see that a lot of, 
18 to 20 or two year olds are really invested in this topic right off the bat. It's included in the curriculum. It's, Mm. um, it's a, it's a mandate from society to, to make sure that, um, classical music, art music, whatever, like all these dumb terms for, for the broadheading of what we do as sound practitioners are attentive to social practice and then civic practice even as well, like to be, to be leaders in society and government as well. Right. So what's your vision there in terms of um, proposing something for the educational systems in that regard? Yeah. I mean, the radical part of me wonders a lot about where time is spent in undergraduate education. And I think that a few years ago, I would have thought, well, there's not enough time spent on um, how one can um, realize their practice practically in terms of... um, how to how to create a business out of it or how to incorporate it into structures of fundraising and stuff like that. I think that was a concern and and has been a really thoughtful sometimes thoughtful sometimes too quickly um and um carelessly integrated into curriculum. Now I'm now I question so if we're spending a lot of time on western european harmonic music theory lessons a lot of time uh is that the right prioritization of time or would a constantly integrated curriculum of social practice and art practice actually create what, um, what we end up, what society ends up needing from us. And so, so it actually recasts art, not as a, as a selfish expression, but as a service. And I don't know if that's the right cast either, but I'm interested in at least uh, testing the waters of flipping this paradigm so that, that one goes to conservatory, not to, to develop their own craft, but that their own craft develops at the service of of um, uh, of, of bringing a new society to bear. So, a, a, a kind of an ideological package that you are welcoming into the education, as apart from a kind of art for its own sake. I think so. Art in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. As as a, an artist, especially working in sound, the characteristics of sight and sight sight determination or sight specificity are critical to me, and I think that. The next evolution, an evolution that's not new, it's only new to me. It's it's not new to lots and lots of great artists prior. Um, that that a, that society is not a, a site for extraction of art, but it is a society to into which art must be given and um, received and exchanged and uh, made as a kind of like. Um, nourishing agent uh that's i mean that's, I, I realize it gets kind of idealistic and philosophical but it it's easy also to take that and apply it to a curriculum so and that's where i am interested in continuing to do that work is is in the curriculum at places like oberlin or where i teach at the new school in new york city um but the, on the whole the philosophy manifests as uh let's look at where we're spending our time and uh and, and wonder aloud about what greatness is and what um, excellence is, you know. But it's happening though, and I, I, sh- I don't, th- I don't think it's worth. Um, it's, it's, it's. I should spend just as much time speaking critically as to say, like, it is happening. I feel it. Yeah, across the board of uh, American conservatories, or yes, uh, yeah, yeah. And not everybody's doing it in the same way. So there's going to be some that make the right decisions and some that make a stupid decision, and it's hard to know who's right. I feel it's come a f- long way. In the English-speaking countries, I also feel Australia has done a lot. Um, Absolutely, Americans. I, I get a lot more from 
Yeah, from UK, from from the US, um, Central Europe. I'm not sure it's come that far yet. A little bit in the new music festivals, right? A little bit, but they're still speaking a lot uh, gender balance and and this this post-colonial thing is a little maybe a little behind in the whole awareness in the departments, at least in my experience here in the south. It's still very very conservative. Yeah, it's true. Also in 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 our colleagues in in East Asia and Korea and Japan and and China and um, so. If there was, if broadly there was just an acceptance that Western European music was going to be the music that is taught to teach people music, uh, let's let's not just take that as an assumption. Of course, we shouldn't take that as an assumption. But I, I don't know if this is the right thing to say. So I'm thinking of it. I'm I'm, I'm real time, in the in the moment, thinking aloud that for Central Europe to continue to teach the music that was created on its land, mm. yeah, <laughs> uh, has logic. But not without interrogating the colonial um, extraction that comes by way of the Afro diaspora and several other diasporas that were have been in Europe for hundreds of years. Right. Um, so, I think that that's that's an interesting uh, awareness that I I see in European discourse frequently now. How does a band like yours, who still I guess mostly play in like a concert hall context in the in a very institutionalized hermetic setting, how do you curate that in a meaningful sense? Where you still kind of use the very westernized and cultivated way of listening for a new content. Yeah, um, I'm gonna sort of describe that phenomenon slightly differently and see if it's the same thing. Um, so basically, we created these contemporary music organizations, institutions, ensembles, and we're wondering to ourselves, and we are actually wondering this. So I'm confirming or affirming what you're saying that is what we've created what we want to invite more people into or are we even proud of what we've created do we think it's the right environment for for to expand or should we actually contract this because it failed mm. great question i don't actually have the answer <laughs> so i i i, I, I it's, feel like it's um, good-hearted but um there's no big um economy or anything like that to offer it's just a little window right in a festival yeah. for I don't know we don't we don't offer stardom. <laughs> no, no, and and but but if 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 I would be perhaps too naive or hopeful, it would be that what organizations like ours and I feel it from Music Fabrique too. So I, I don't. It's not unique to the International Contemporary Ensemble, but it does offer opportunities for people to explore something that they couldn't do alone. So there is value in creating organizations that form collective energy and allow people to do something more than they can do by themselves. And that's, that's like almost childishly naive or hopeful, but it's okay. I think that's what's driving us. Yeah. So if that's the case and there's still work to do to create the, that the environment that it, that comes by way of that collective action or collective creativity is healthy or not. Is it equitable? Is it, does it have equity? Does it prioritize um, equity? And, the those questions are uh not answered sufficiently so just, they're still in the question mode and 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 they need to be addressed urgently but the um at, at one thing i do know is that if inclusion and inclu- inclusivity are the primary um agents for of of critical advancement then it's important that the there's openness in the systems design and the environmental design so that once new um, artists and voices and administrators are in these organizations, then they have the ability to change them. 
that the new, the new voices have the ability to change the organization as opposed to um, come in and, and try to fight their fight for um, for the change they they need to see so it's a it's like two things at once which is inclusion but also openness like radical openness towards shifts and change it, this is not happening very easily this is this is the I think could be described as the central conflict in um, in or in new in contemporary music organizations but potentially just like music organizations I, I just don't know much about old music organizations where I live and work is not for profit industries which are not industries so much as um, as as uh, practices and so if if popular cultural profiting industries are having these questions they ask them differently and they answer them differently but the questions have a lot of common ground with 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 organizations that have more agency to be more radical in their maneuvering um, which are not-for-profit organizations um Mm -hmm. so in a way i think like in the way that uh, yes there's some guilt and fragility induced uh momentum that's uh that's true but also i think that that shouldn't be a distraction like yes there's guilt yes there's fragility around around that guilt but that's just a, a kind of byproduct of the critic the core aim of inclusion um and i think that uh countries that have a much um they have a long way every, all countries have a long way to go all nations that that you know took place took uh, extractive advantage of of the colonial practice, like Australia and Canada and the United States, ha- have a long way to go with um, treatment of indigenous culture and hu- and people. Mm. But um, I, we learn a lot from Australia. We learn a lot from Canada, and and everybody's learning from each other in that space. But then in in more broadly, in terms of just um, inclusion of more racial diversity, more gender diversity in our practice, um, it's important that organizations have a holistic approach. Where are the gates that are currently closed to, um, and, and, and once within, once inside that recently opened gate, uh, do they have the right agency? Do they have agency at all in like advancing a new system that's more equitable and more inclusive. These are the systems questions that then have a kind of social uh, question that surrounds them. Um, yeah, if I were to sort of say that again, just in case you want like a shorter version of that, it's that I see every uh, region of the world addressing this in a different way and every industry or practice addressing the issue of inclusion in a different way. And some are much more accelerated than others and some are focused in different areas than others. But the broad a revolution or should be a revolution but perhaps it's it's 10 degrees shy of that um is is around um decolonization and inclusion uh to make reparations for a very sinister few hundred years like undeniably sinister
I think that in all the sort of headspace that goes toward organizing and communication and relationships in an artistic practice in the field, especially in the U.S., that it is sometimes hard to find the moments of of expression that feels personal to me or collaborative. But there have been some projects recently that feel really good despite the the pandemic and the lockdowns. Um, uh, specifically, you know, with the International Contemporary Ensemble, a recent concert at um, uh, which was shared between Harpa in Reykjavik and Roulette and connected over telematic technology. And it was awesome. It was the music of Anthony Braxton and a brand new work by Bergeron Schneebrenstadtir. Just good, good pieces, great atmosphere, very collaborative. Um, and it felt like a, a return to that kind of work uh, during the pandemic is almost, a, you know, uh, 13 months after we started the lockdown. But um and then because of the pandemic, the increase in people wanting to distribute their work as either pre-made music videos and films or live streams, I find a lot of satisfaction in, in that, of course, because of the filmmaking practice that I enjoy so much. But the specifically, I've, I've collaborated with an artist named Autumn Knight. Um, and just as an artist, she's amazing. Like, it's just enough said with that. But the p- specific piece was you know, a project that was supposed to be a performance art piece with a live audience, but then got restructured toward a live stream of uh, audio and video. And um, in July of 2020, and the, I was just brought in more like a video technician, but it became a very um, extremely satisfying space for expression. And and so it, it opened up for me this, this new idea that there could be this, that the pandemic kind of revealed this uh, real-time verite. I don't don't know what to call it yet. And I'm still looking for the word, but it doesn't feel like live streaming. It doesn't feel like live broadcasting. And it doesn't feel like event documentation, but where the camera operators and the person operating the switcher and all this stuff have a lot of expressive agency. And I'm so grateful to Autumn Knight for having the insight to to, to let that agency be in the space it was remarkable so we've done two projects one was in july one was in march and you can watch them both online the the rebroadcast but every element of them happened live and uh uh the i don't know it felt like it felt like the mixture of my practices because the percussion side of it is like managing a lot of different uh, sources and switching cameras and doing things like that and um kind of like a multi-percussion setup uh but but the the visual practice of it was it relied on very trusting collaborators and it felt very very good so that i might link to that project if that makes sense and um on a very final note where do you see your, your practice going over the next 10 20 years yeah it's a good question i keep i think i've said to myself like every other year like maybe this is the year where i just really don't play percussion ever again <laughs> it's not because I like, I, but I think it's because I don't dislike it. I really like it a lot that I keep, keep at it. And quite a lot. I still play a lot. So I'm still going to figure out when that decision actually gets made. <laughs> so, so far the stack of pieces that I'm learning is still, you know, very deep. And yeah. What would be the, uh, the, the final factor for that? Do you think the final push? I guess it's when there aren't pieces left to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really sad. Yeah. So yeah, at your productivity rate, that seems unlikely. no. It's it's not it's not a likely scenario. No, I think I'd have to make I have to just 
do a it's not like soul searching it's more just like making the decision being brave and just saying like okay it stops today um that seems like a possibility (laughs) yeah today is it i think the thing that's really true for me is i i really want to be in an academic context so we'll see when that ever happens but uh yeah Uh, right now that's not what i'm doing as very much i teach a little bit but um so i but down the road and also helping with the practical aspects of young musicians who would like to uh figure out how to organize their ensembles and stuff i don't i love that